0: the Lord okay well let's get into some timeless truth <laughs> right practical theology we're still in that topic which really I mean we can be in it forever and we're talking about unity uh in the church and um, this is obviously kind of a pet peeve for pastors you know this is kind of a pet doctrine we like to jump up and down on, you know, uh unity in the church, and we already looked at one aspect in the fact that we are united based on virtue. Remember, that was verses what? One through three, right? Or was it one to two? You guys tell me. Three? Is it three? Yeah. And then the next section is what we can call oneness, not oneness Pentecostalism or anything like that. <laughs> Oh, you apologists, are ready to pounce uh, we can call this oneness, we can call this you know uh the unity of our faith or something like that, but that's that's really what 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 is being talked about here, so if you're back in Ephesians chapter four, the verses we 're looking at is four through six. Let me just read the text for us, okay This is what it says: there is one body, one spirit, just also, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Um, so the apostle here making kind of a, a second appeal uh, for unity now, based on the fact that we have this oneness uh, that we share. And so what you will notice from here is that he's picked up on some you know, some really massive ideas uh, of what it is that our unity, practically speaking, what it is that our unity is based on. Uh, it is based on, you know, the biggest realities of Christianity, uh, number one. And so I thought, let's just go through some of these and reflect on how each one of these uh, is sort of a reminder to us that we ought to have unity. Uh, number one, there is one body, right? Right. Uh there is one Soma in the Greek. There is one body, and there obviously he's referring to the body of Christ. Now, here's a question I want to know. Is, uh, when he says there is one body, what is he referring to? There's one local church. Um, there's one New Testament church. Uh there's one New Covenant Church. Uh when he says one body, what is he what is he getting at there? The body of Christ. That's right. Church. There's one church. Um and just by the way he's smiling, I can tell he means something more than just one church. <laughs> right? You mean something a little bit more theological than that, probably. Uh huh. So what do you what do you, how would you explain that? The believers from
1: Adam to the last ones who believe comprises the
0: church. Well, yeah. Couldn't said it better myself. Um, because he doesn't say church, does he? He doesn't say one church. He just says body. And so there, of course, he's talking about the body of Christ. So the question is, is who is in the body of Christ, right? And like Jonathan said, I mean, this is kind of, you can expand on this as far out as you want to in the sense of you can go all the way back to Adam and say that Adam was, technically speaking, um, you know Adam and Eve, uh, based on their faith in the promise Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen, uh, they were in the body of Christ in the sense that they are elect if they repented and believed, which I believe they did, um, but yeah, so saints all the way back from uh, from Genesis and then all of those that will believe in onto uh, revelation or we can even say to the end of the age. Uh, that is who is in the universal body of Jesus Christ. It is not just, uh, the New Testament, right? So that's kind of part of our theological system, uh, which is, you know, more of a covenantal approach to the Bible is that we do not, like for us, Christianity doesn't begin at Matthew chapter one you know what I'm saying, (laughs) right? Christianity begins in Genesis chapter one, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? So we don't want to have this idea that, well, you know, the Old Testament is kind of for the Jewish people and the New Testament, well, that's for us, that's for us Christians, you know what I mean? So when I really want a relevant part of scripture for my life, I better turn to the New Testament because the Old Testament really doesn't apply to me anymore, right? That's a very wrong headed approach to the Bible, right? Yes, sir. Mm. and then they go on to revelation. But, uh, it's, you know, it's Interesting. Mindset that, that That's, right. To that. That's right. That's um, right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I don't know that in preaching, uh, like if I would be preaching an Old Testament text and when the people of God are being referred to in the Old Testament text, you could be very careful when you're ex- actually doing Old Testament exegesis and Old Testament theology and Old Testament preaching that you're not Superimposing New Testament words into the Old Testament. You know what I mean by that? Where every time you talk about the Old Testament people, you're using the word church. That could be a very um, it's a problematic approach because you could be easily uh, 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 you could easily be um, committing a lo- uh, exegetical fallacy there. You know what I mean? Because just because it refers to God's people in the Old Testament, that is not you know. That, that that that's not a, a controvertible statement to the church. You see what I'm saying. So we have to be very careful how we define that. You know. But when we say church in this salvific sense, like in a salvific context, like Ephesians four, when the Apostle Paul, for example, has in mind the saved body, <laughs> then those who are in the saved body. Um, another way to say that is all of God's elect people from all time right i mean isn 't that simple enough right if you 're elect you 're in the body right so any questions about that any anything regarding that that 's such a huge idea, but I mean so like let's let 's think of it along the lines of what Paul has designed here right he 's underscoring the idea that there is one body <laughs> right, so the local church, because that 's really where this is going to come to fruition is the life of the local church because. Who is he writing to in Ephesus? He's writing to the, the church in Ephesus, right? Maybe even a collection of churches in the Ephesian region, maybe. But he's definitely writing to local church uh, in a local church context. So based on the idea that there is one universal body of believers and that we belong to that body, what should that say about our unity, right? That we are not two different religions, we are not two different ecclesiastical uh uh entities, right? We belong to the same spiritual group, the same spiritual community of God's people, so that when we engage in divisions in the body of Christ, and I would say I would say especially sinful divisions uh in the body of Christ, when we engage in sinful divisions of the body of Christ, uh when there is sort of a, a, a divisiveness in the body of Christ Right? We, we really are living in contradiction to who we are. Right? So that's the, that's what we should. And, but how many times do we, if we're going to be dividing with someone, how many times do we really stop to reflect to think, look, is this division really necessary? There's only one body. You see what I'm saying? So this is a challenge. Uh, I know that all of us, you know, we're not, no one has attained to this, but this really should be uh, something that motivates us, you know, when we talk about unity in the church. What about uh, any uh anybody else on that? Because that's such a great topic. But one church, um, just to maybe support the theology that we were talking about, you know, Jesus says, I will build a church, um, you know, Hebrews, Peter, Revelation. There is one people of God throughout. Uh, there is one house, one temple, one building, one household, one nation. That's what the Bible Talks about in terms of the people of God, right? Uh, that, that passage out of first Peter chapter two, by the way, when Peter says there is that you are a holy nation, the reason that verse is so important is because where does that verse come from? Right? That verse comes directly out of the Old Testament, right? And now Peter is applying that to Christians (laughs) and saying that we are the holy nation of God. Wow, that's remarkable change in, you know, the economy of God, that anyone who is in Christ Jesus is now the holy nation. So anyway, um, great stuff. Secondly, there is one pneuma. What is pneuma? Spirit, right? There is one spirit. And here, of course, he is talking about the Holy Spirit, now, in your English translation, like mine, the word spirit is capitalized. Well, guess what? Not in the Greek text. Uh, most words in the Greek text are not capitalized. So the word spirit here, sometimes, um, you know, there can be a debate as to... Uh, because the word spirit can mean um, something like mindset, uh disposition, right? Attitude, right? That kind of sense. But... I don't think that's what's being uh, talked about here. I think this is, again, the Apostle Paul is speaking sort of in ultimate terms. And so ultimately, we have one Holy Spirit that binds us all together, one spirit that resides inside of us, one spirit that indwells us, one spirit that puts us into mystical union with Christ. And on the basis of that, um, according to Scripture, we are being led by one spirit. Our lives should be governed by one spirit. We should all have the fruit of the spirit in our lives. Um, right? What does he say here? Even just above, right, verse three: being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, the spirit, when he is at work in the context of God's people, he produces peace. Right? He unites us. I mean, that's what Ephesians. Um, already has said where so remember guys the whole book is broken up from the indicative passages of scripture to the imperative right and where does where does the indicative indicate the peace producing spirit of god bearing mind that the indicative passages you're talking about chapters one through three the imperative is chapters four through six so where in the where in the indicative part of Ephesians has Paul already taught that the spirit produces peace in our hearts in our lives among God's people and and maybe not even necessarily um oh yeah I mean the spirit <laughs> right which is incredible but anybody want to take a stab at it? anybody know Seeking, searching. All right? This is good because it shows you how foundational theology theology is, um, as Al Mohler says. You know, theology matters. You know what you what you believe will absolutely determine how you live, right? Absolutely. So Ephesians chapter two, for example, he's already said that he says that he's made out of the two people, Jew and Gentile. Verse fifteen. Right? One new man, thus establishing peace. Right? That he might reconcile both of them in one body to God through the cross by having, by, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to, uh, you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access. Watch this. In one spirit. You see that? To the father. Uh, so this is what I mean by the Spirit, uh, because he unites us to Christ, he unites us to one another. Um, and on the basis of that, we should, we should have unity. Any questions on that? Or statements on that? Anybody? Any insights on how the Spirit unites the people of God? Just so you, it's, it's neat to yeah?
1: see from all corners of the world, you a mm-hmm. brother.
0: Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Amen. I, I, I uh, uh, you know, an event in my life that illustrates that very thing is, um, many years ago I was in Israel and I was speaking, uh, with a Arab Christian in the Arab quarter, uh, of old, the old city of Jerusalem. And we were talking and I was asking him, what is your fellowship like with Jewish Christians? Like the Jewish, the Arab community, the Palestinian community, and the Jewish, you know, because I mean, politically, you know how, you know, how, how volatile that is, you know, and he began to share with me that it's, it's limited, um, unfortunately, but it, it exists, and we do have fellowship. And he says, in fact, he says, there's this one pastor that comes by every once in a while, and we, we have great fellowship with each other, and blah, blah, blah. And just as he's saying that, the pastor showed up. And he walked into the store where I was at. And it was just amazing to sit there with a, a Palestinian Christian, a Jewish pastor, you know, Christian pastor. And the fact that we all had fellowship in that moment, you know, it's just a, a, an incredible testament to what the Spirit is able to do in the hearts of God's people, uh, overcoming all of the division. Uh, how about this? How about hope, right? We have one hope, he says. There is one hope. So when he says one hope... Um, what does he mean by hope in this context? Hope of a better life? Hope of better finances? Hope of better marriage? Hope of, uh, what? The hope of the American dream? <laughs> the hope of the resurrection. Amen. Uh, it's somewhat, um, it's somewhat general, isn't it? Because I mean, we can't kind of, you know, fill in that. That term with the hope of heaven. Right? Uh first Peter says that, right? That we have that hope reserved for us in heaven. Right? Certainly it's resurrection. What's that? Uh-huh. Yeah. See if you can find that. It's a, um, hope that nice journaling Bible. <laughs> yeah. The hope of our calling, the hope of our calling. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean. So, how does this hope bind us together? I can think of two ways that it binds us together. How does this hope bind us together? That's the whole point, right? I mean, the fact that there is one hope, the apostle expects that we will experience greater unity based on the fact that there's only one hope. So, how does that work? How does that work? Anyone? How about this side of the crowd? You know? Don't let Jonathan Bulgart the whole Sunday school class. Okay. I was <laughs> like, please, please. Yep. We're all going to be in heaven together. So, whether there's something now or not, you know what I'm saying? Like, even today, we're all going to have perfect unity eventually,
1: but even now, that reality that we're all going to
0: be together forever, right? Um Should unite us in some sense. Yeah. Yeah, we're stuck together, right? I mean, we're stuck with each other. <laughs> right? So, so yeah, yeah, that's right. And I mean, think how glorious heaven will be, right? All conflict is over. All, all, you know, slander in the church, backbiting, bickering, fighting divisions, all these things, God, all sin is over, all envy, all covetousness. You will never again uh, envy your brother or your sister, you will never again deal with jealousy, you're never again going to deal with, you know, being hurt by someone in the church, you know, all of that is going to be washed away, this is our hope, you know, and, and the other aspect of that that I was thinking of is that, is the distinguishing aspect of hope, that it distinguishes the people of God. It sets us apart from everyone else, brothers and sisters. I mean, my wife and I were driving into the church today, surrounded by these, uh, Hindu folks right out here, and we're thinking, and, and, and Trisha pointed this out. She says, none of their gods provide atonement. And I'm like, that's right. I mean, they worship, what, 300 million gods? Not one of them provides atonement for their sin. They have no hope outside of Christ. And so, we are distinguished by our hope. Our hope is what sets us apart. Uh, we do not weep as those that have no hope, right The scripture says because our hope is is a is a faithful hope. What does Paul say? Our hope does not disappoint, right so we have a hope that we can cash in you know um, i don 't know I mean so how does that how does that encourage us you know to have unity in the church? The fact that we have one hope anyone anyone? No insight. See, Jonathan, you guys gave him. <laughs> See? Yeah. Hey, brother, I'm, I'm right here with you, man. Very good. The Very good. Amen. Yeah, amen. Amen. Encouragement, right? So when your brother or your sister is down, just the ability that we have to encourage each other with the hope. You know what I mean? Look up, right? No matter how bad it is, no matter how bad it has gotten, no matter how bad the situation is right now, we have the same hope. And what is that hope? That hope produces, you know, joy and, and encouragement in the in the church, it should, you know? And it, it helps us to set our eyes back on the prize. Um, one hope, and now he says, one, one, one faith, or wait a minute, no, no, no. So you were called into one hope of your calling. And oh, here we go. He says one Lord. Yeah, kurios. Who's that? Lord. Jesus, right? Uh, There is one Lord, one Savior. The fact that there is one, to us, this should remind us that not only do we have one Lord, but that puts us all on the level playing field. We are all simply servants, bond servants of the one Lord. We are not masters of one another. We are oh, co-servants of Christ, right? And the fact that he is our Lord means, of course, that he is our Redeemer, our Savior. He's the Savior of the whole body, of the whole body. Um, boy, one Lord. What else does the Lordship of Christ imply for us, practically speaking? Submission, right? We're all submitted to the standard of Christ, Right. Same thing. Um, I can think of another verse that goes right along with that would be like uh, second Corinthians chapter 10. Right. Where the apostle Paul says. um, He says in first Corinthians or second Corinthians 10 verse five, he says, we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing that that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Right, so we have the same standard. we're called to the same standard of obedience. Look at uh Romans chapter six, Romans chapter six, for example verse seventeen. uh, I guess we can go back to verse. Uh, 16 he says do do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience you are slaves of the one to whom you obey either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness but thanks be to god that though you were slaves of sin you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed yeah that's right that's right we're all serving the same lord and master um what about faith? This implies that we have a universal faith that binds us together. There is only one conception of religion that is true, and that is our faith. Right? Uh, I guess here the Apostle Paul means something like the faith, not uh, uh, the exercise of faith, right? So it's not that we're exercising the same faith but that we have one faith, which is the faith that has been delivered to the saints. Jude verse 3, once for all, right? We have the same religion. We believe that we should believe in, in, in the sense of orthodox historic Christianity. We believe the same thing. Now, have you, have you ever been in a situation where you're witnessing and somebody tells you, Uh, why are there so many denominations? Why are there so many different expressions of Christianity? If you guys are all just one, why are there so many different Christians? Mm -hmm. You know? Uh, How do you answer that? You know? How would you answer that, Landon?
1: Well, I would just say that uh, within denominations, they're basically just become... um, Denominations have developed uh, certain ways that they can help each other in a certain area. Uh, maybe maybe it's in providing money for uh, um, maybe um, uh, 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 various churches. Um, different ways that they can help be in communication with one another. Uh, they've adopted certain. Um, they've, uh, uh, well, how would
0: you answer though that, that all these denominations believe something different?
1: Well, I wouldn't say that they they believe something different, but denominations are they're not necessarily they're not necessarily dissensions from from the faith, um, but they're basically they're. Um, they're basically a way that churches uh, can be in communication with one another, hold each other accountable to the church. So
0: there's a practical necessity for denominational differences, That's yeah, what yeah, you're saying. Yeah. Okay, so that, that could show some unity. Yes, sir? There's a slogan for that, right? Secondary, secondary, what is it? That right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I've actually done that where I'll be preaching at UNT and that question will come up and I've had the opportunity where I'll have a Presbyterian friend there present. There was a Presbyterian guy that would come and he used to work at UNT and he'd come and listen to our preaching. And, uh, I've had that moment where they, they made that accusation, you know, there's so many different kinds of Christians, you know what I mean? This, this religion is not unified or whatever. I said, no, I said, you know, My brother here is Presbyterian, you know, we have a lot of differences, but, you know, I got down, I gave him a hug, you know, like, he's my brother, you know, (laughs) you know, so, so, you know, like the reformers would say on essentials, unity on non-essentials charity, Mm -hmm. right. Or diversity and in all things, charity or something like that. Right. So, so yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're united in faith in the sense of on the essentials of the Christian faith, there is no division, right. Right. We believe, as you were saying, Jared, we believe that there, there is one Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God, that the God is triune, that the Bible is the word of God. We don't deviate on those things. We believe in the same gospel. Yes, sir. Is it safe to say that God uses these divisions sovereignly um, for the spread of the gospel? Because the more divisions you have, I mean, the gospel spread spreading further. You have more churches. So is there a good aspect to that in some ways? Um. Yeah, I mean, I guess practically speaking, I would say that ultimately theological difference is error, right? Because someone's wrong, right? You baptize babies or you don't baptize babies. You'll find out in heaven, our Presbyterian brethren were wrong, you know what I mean? <laughs> You know, like I say, I mean, when I get to heaven, I can't wait to stand in front of all the major, like, eschatology people, you know, and just sit there and wait for the Lord to reveal it. And be like, you were wrong, man! <laughs> and you know what? In heaven, they won't even take offense to that, so anyway. But you know what I mean? Ultimately, theological division is error. So that's something like what you were saying about the glass dimly, right? 1 Corinthians, what, 13? Right? So, so, yeah, that's right. We all see through a glass dimly. We're trying, even Peter, right? Peter says some of the things that Paul wrote, uh, what did he say? Where's that at? Second Peter three, right? He says some of the things he's wrote is difficult to understand. It's just like, man, some of the stuff that Paul is saying in Romans is like, wow, it's very intricate and deep and profound and, 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 and nuanced. You know what I mean? So that's not to say that scripture is not clear, but because of the interpreter, we are not infallible although we have an infallible rule of faith we are not infallible sources of interpretation therefore we will differ right uh, yes mike uh, hebrews 13:8 and 9 hebrews what 13:8 and 9 yes sir Mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's there's jesus christ doesn't change the faith does not change you know what i mean it doesn't matter how many variations of christianity there are we have the same basic essential tenets right and 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 so and at that point there may they, there may be a necessity for us to identify what are those essential tenets of the christian faith from which you cannot deviate because you will no longer be Christian, right? So that's very important to determine. Yeah, makes me think of Second uh, Peter uh, verse one of chapter one, and I'll start in the middle. It says yep. to those who have received a faith of the same kind
1: as ours by the righteousness of our God and
0: Savior Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, Amen. That's right. That's exactly right. And then he even goes on to say in verse ten, right? He says, and, he says, and and you know, as to this salvation. Right? The prophets, the men of old, right? They, they sought out, you know, seeking to understand what manner of time or person the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So, so what he's saying there is, that's right. One salvation, one salvation, one salvation. People old, that same salvation is what's being committed to the Gentiles now, right? And that's exactly, that salvation is what the Old Testament prophets were inquiring. You know, as they sought that out, well, where did they seek that out? In Scripture, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. But they didn't have the old—they didn't have the New Testament back then, so they're seeking out the salvation that we have right now in the Old Testament text, so trying to understand it right. specifically. What manner of person and time the Spirit of Jesus in them was indicating? Wow. It's just, anyway, you guys know I like that verse, Amen. so go go ahead. Oh,
1: I was just saying another another kind of verses is um first Timothy four what it says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from
0: the faith. The faith. Yeah, so the body of doctrine, these um, these rule of faith. Yeah, paradosis, there is the tradition. Right. right? Which Catholics try to take that word and they try to say, see, that the Bible teaches that we have to have tradition next to the, the, the Word of God. Right? So of course not. Paradosis is being equated with the word of God equated with the apostles teaching it's the same thing okay so any other questions or statements on on that right yeah it, it is amazing i mean i'll tell you when i was in uganda africa i remember going to a church where like four different denominations and they all worship together <laughs> you know talk about kind of challenging right on the conscience (laughs) i mean we had episcopalians we had methodists we had baptists we had pentecostals and we were all in one giant amphitheater together worshiping together and taking communion together i wasn't in charge don't blame me okay (laughs) the fundies would have a (laughs) that's right that's right uh but they did not allow catholics praise the lord i would walk out if a catholic was involved in that because that's no longer simply a denominational difference or nuance now you're talking about a different gospel in my opinion you see what i'm saying yes ma'am so is there a reason they, met together? they have to they just have to they they just have to come together based on their circumstances you know they're fleeing persecution you know these are sudanese that came from sudan you know fleeing persecution the, the un gives them a big plot of land and says good luck you know and so they just ban- they have to try to band together in everything they do you know it's really wild it's amazing what persecution will do you know what i mean yeah anything else any other questions on that uh what else does Paul say here so from one faith to what one baptism right um what baptism is that referring to that speaking about spiritual baptism in Christ. <laughs> no, that's not the question I'm asking is is it is it uh is it spiritual baptism or is it physical baptism? You know, that's the question. I would say they're inseparable, right? I mean, you cannot partake of physical baptism without spiritual baptism, right? So it's of course talking about and, and I don't know, I would say probably here um I don't know, that's a tough call. I've always favored the the view of spiritual baptism but, um, the fact that, you know, physical baptism was such a, such a prominent sign of the early church. <laughs> Notice me, you know, like the early church is baptizing, right? <laughs> They're not sprinkling or anything, you know? <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, you know, we, we only have one baptism that symbolizes our participation in the body of Christ, right? And, and I mean, think about it. What is baptism for? it is a reminder that we stand in solidarity with Jesus Christ, that we are in union with him, that we have become partakers of his death, burial, and resurrection. That is what baptism does. And in the early church, it was very unifying because in the early church to get baptized was, a, in many t- many circumstances, it was a life-threatening situation. You put your life on the line to go publicly get baptized in the Jordan you face being ostracized by the pharisees and the commu- the Jewish community you know what i mean if they saw you partaking of the baptism let's say of john the baptist and then later of jesus you know i mean it could cost you everything to identify with uh with christians you know um, but again it reminds us that believers in the church should accept uh each other because christ has accepted us because we are in christ uh oh by the way Go back to verse 2 of Ephesians 4. Some of you guys asked me about this. I had multiple people ask me, but when it says, uh, with all humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another, of course, I did, you know, of course when we say show tolerance, we don't mean anything like tolerate sin, right, anything like that. So I just want to make that clear. I was hoping that would be clear, but but just to explicitly say, no, we don't tolerate sin, you know. Johnny's smoking crack, but he's saved. You know, don't worry about... He's just far from Jesus right now. Give him some time. You know. <laughs> you know, no, no, no. <laughs> I was talking to a brother and a sister in Christ who told me uh it's common knowledge that this gentleman on the worship team is a homosexual and nobody's doing anything about it. This is an evangelical church in the area. So people do, people do err on this. You know what I mean? And they do tolerate sin. It's everywhere. You know what I mean? I mean, just because the guy knows how to play guitar, I mean, put him up on stage. Who cares if he's a regenerate or not? You know? And they go to verses like that. Just tolerate him. You know what I mean? That's good, Landon. That's right. That's right. Oh, anything else on baptism and how baptism is a unifying force in the church? Hey, but Yes, sir. Well, according to Romans 6, you know, it says that um, Romans 6,
1: verse 3, it says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk with him. We have been united with him in a death like his We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like
0: his mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you think about what that's saying, right? Is that by virtue of your baptism, what you are pro- proclaiming is that you are when you come up out of the water, what you're saying is that you are prepared to to live a newness of life, you are prepared to live the Christian life, right so also holds us accountable to each other. Yes, sir? Yeah, that's the aspect I wanted to bring out.
1: Is in the, it, it brings out whom we are to treat as a brother. You know, you see someone getting baptized for professing the faith, joining together in the local membership of the body, you know you are now to treat them as a
0: brother or sister in the faith. Yeah, amen. Amen, right? Amen. I mean, t- sadly, today, you know, in evangelicalism, baptism has become something really shallow. You know what I mean? It's like we have, we have baptisms for the youth group, you know? How many of these kids can we baptize on this, on this youth group, you know? Yeah, this, uh, you know, this, uh, this camping trip. You know what I mean? How many of them can we get, you know, in the lake? And, and really it means nothing. I mean, baptism is very serious. You know, I've been challenged by this myself. Um, I think the youngest person I ever baptized was 13 years old. And she fell away from the faith. And, uh, that's, that's no, you know, that's no necessarily a sure indication that they will fall away. I've baptized older people in the faith that have fallen away as well. Um, I baptized a guy. He showed remarkable fruit. He, you know, parable of the sower. Here we go, right? I mean, just zeal, passion, just he love for Christ and all of this. Joined the church, got baptized, you know, six months later, right back out in the world doing drugs. You know what I mean? Those are the heartbreaking, heart wrenching, you know? The elders examined him. We questioned him. We, 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 you know, like Donald Trump, you know, extreme vetting, you know? <laughs> I mean, we did our due diligence, you know, to try to, try to make sure are you truly regenerate, you know? But what does that show you? I mean, what that shows you is that, I mean, you may be able to fool the elders into thinking you're saved, you know, but at the end of the day, I mean, you're not going to fool God, you know? So, but it's very serious. Baptism is a very, very serious ordinance of the church and uh we try to take it serious. I mean, you know, some churches, I mean, they've made it so that baptism, I mean, there's an age requirement. I know Mark Dever, his age requirement, I think, is 18 years old. You have to be at least 18 years old to get baptized in their church. I don't know that I would do that. I think James White's church has an age limit as well. I think it might be 16. I don't know. I baptized a 16-year-old boy and he's still walking with the Lord, so praise God. Um but you know it's just like K-Dub was saying you know the concept of baptism and church membership go together i mean the early church all through acts it was you know they were baptized and they joined the church you know what i mean so um it was, it was 3, yeah added, that day. added yeah to the that's right that's right how do you guys handle baptism of teenagers here case by case mm-hmm. you know what i mean if this, I mean, for me, it's just hard because there is that text that says, "What forbids this person to be baptized who has also believed, just as we have?" Right. So, if somebody has genuinely come to faith in Christ, who are we to say no? You know what I mean? Now, this takes a lot of, you know, it takes a lot of counsel. It takes a lot of uh, a lot of wisdom with the parents. Um, I was approached by a gentleman once. He came up to me with his daughters uh very young, maybe nine, ten years old, and said, Hey pastor, um, I got some girls here I need to baptize. Is that okay with you? I said, No, that's not okay with me. <laughs> you know, I said, Well, you know, we gotta talk about that. You know what I mean? We we really in our church, we try to, you know, baptism is something that's done through the leadership of the church. You know, pastors are the one baptizing. Never came back again. And baptism is not just something for us to play around with for sentimental reasons. I mean it's a high ordinance of the church we have to take it deadly serious. So I don't know, I mean right now it's a case by case type thing, you know. Yes sir. I think it's important that like, if someone wants to get baptized need to know what that means. Like what that means. Exactly. To 6, exactly. What saying, that exactly. That yeah. And this means, young lady that I'm talking about, she exhibited profound understanding of baptism, better than some adults. Totally understood. She was homeschooled. She knew theology. She rattled off what it meant, and we were really impre- we were almost like, "Wow, you know what I mean?" This young girl really understands baptism, right? And so we were constrained by that to say, "What? Who can forbid her from getting baptized?" You know what I mean? Would I have done it differently now? I don't know. Next question. <laughs> Yeah, because, right, I mean, like I said, I mean, I've had adults that apostatize after baptism. So age is no necessary sign of grace. You know, Um, we'll just we'll see. Last one, folks, not only baptism, but it also says, Ephesians chapter four, verse six, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, what does he mean there by I think we understand father? God and father, right? Uh and he says um he's the father of all, so that's a point of unity. He's all of our father. Uh who is overall, so he's sovereign over everyone and everything. Through all, I would take that to mean that he's not this is not, not some sort of pantheistic idea, right? But what he's saying here is that he he works in all, you know. He is at work in all of us. Right? And he says, and in all, and I would say he is indwelling and he comes to reside in the heart of all of his people. Um, now, now, I, I want you to notice something where time is fading here, but did you notice, uh, verse four, uh, what, the, what Paul gave us here? He gave us a Trinitarian theology, redemptive Trinitarian theology. Now question for you, let's go back, to our breakdown of Ephesians, where in Ephesians has a redemptive Trinitarian theology been taught? Prove it, Keta. Prove it. <laughs> what, what? Where are you at? Ephesians one eleven. We who were the first to hope in Christ may be, may, may, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel,
1: of salvation, and believing in him were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So you yeah, have the Father, big reference in the,
0: the predestination of word. Yeah, I don't, I actually would take, I would take a little bit of ombrage with that translation. That's the ESV? Yeah, because if you notice, it made the subject the promise, not the Spirit. Read it again. You were sealed what? With the promised Holy Spirit. Oh, with the promised Holy Spirit. Oh, okay, okay. That's that's a better way of saying. It. Thank you for right. smoothing that out. For <laughs> I thought you said with the promise of the Holy Spirit. I said okay. All right. Yeah. So with the with the promised Holy Spirit. Okay. That's fine. That's fine. The NASB says with the Holy Spirit of promise, but same thing. So very good. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And really, if you look at verses three all the way down to verse fourteen. That is a Trinitarian redemptive passage of Scripture, right? I mean, that is you know um, you know verses three all the way down to verse six. That what what we can say is that that is the you know that is the work of the Father to elect, to predestine, and to adopt, right? And then from verses seven all the way down to verse twelve, that is the work primarily of the Son to redeem, to forgive, to cleanse, right? All of that, and then verses. 13 to 14 that is the work of the spirit to seal and to indwell and so right there we have a trinitarian redemption being laid out for us in the indicative passage of of ephesians and now we're seeing how in the imperative section of ephesians that trinitarian redemption comes to practical fruition in our lives amazing amazing right i'm so out of time (laughs) i get in trouble for those five minutes anyway this is glorious let me let me say a prayer for us father lord there's so much here to remind us that we are bound together as brothers and sisters in christ as a household of faith father there's so much here for really for fuel for unity and that's exactly what paul is laying uh, down before us so help us to do our part Every one of us, Lord, none of us has this mastered, none of us here has attained uh, to all of this, but we are all called to the same standard. And so would you, by the power of your spirit and for your own uh, eternal glory, would you use our church as a force of unity that we could um, not only be united with each other, but really, as it says here, in the bond of peace with each other. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.